I'm Kaya Willoughby. Joining me is Claire White. Hello. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We're here to discuss new nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. And it's 2019. Woo-hoo. Happy New Year, Happy Claire. Happy New Year, Kyle. We are back. And it feels so good. It feels so good. Um, so today we're talking about the Dragon Prince. Uh, Claire, why don't you go ahead and tell us more about The Dragon Prince. The Dragon Prince is a new animated series that takes place in the fantastical world of Zadia, where two races, elves and humans, have been at war for generations. The story starts as the elves preparing to retaliate against the humans for the murder of the Dragon King. However, one of the young elven assassins and two human princes form an unlikely alliance when they discover a secret that could stop the conflict. The Dragon Prince was released on Netflix on September 14th, 2018, not 19, and was created created by Wonderstorm Productions. Kyle, you're going to talk about... I'm talking about uh, kids' animation through the ages and Ooh. how it kind of reflects the changing times. Uh, and Claire, you're going to tell us about the production and uh, one Aaron E. Has and Yeah, I'm going to talk about the creators um, and a little bit about Netflix as well. Because that's always interesting. That is always interesting. And this is a show that was heavily attached to another show called Avatar. Like, they, in its marketing, it was really... Right. We know, can discuss that as well. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about that. Because I, I think that's what drew a lot of people to this and created buzz about it. So anyway, The Dragon Prince is a kid's show, but it portrays a very complex world with tough moral decisions and characters being forced to struggle inside and grapple with the system that is being left to them by their elders. In the way that Disney's Snow White was an old myth changed to accentuate the feelings and morals of the time, Dragon Prince is a new myth that struggles with problems reminiscent of our own ever-changing and complex world. Now, for my segment, I'm going to take us on a whirlwind tour of children's movies through the past 90 years and talk about how they reflect the time that they were made in. Reflections of the zeitgeist in children's media from the Great Depression to Operation Iraqi Freedom. It sounds like a great thesis or something. Uh, It probably is a thesis somewhere. (laughs) Uh, Keep in mind that mine will be quick. Uh, Kind of the back of the cereal box version of a very, very loaded topic. Oh, I'm really excited. And you know what? I love back of cereal box versions. I know. Me too. It's, it's, you know. Feels good. It feels good. It feels like you're a kid again reading about, (laughs) I don't know, space travel or something on your Wheaties box. So if you haven't listened to our last episode on Snow White, I'm going to do a quick summary of a great segment done by our very own Claire. (laughs) (laughs) On the origin of the story, uh, Snow White as we know it. And Snow White comes from the Grimm Brothers collection of German folk and fairy tales in the early 1800s, though the story goes further back than 19th century Germany. The original tale involves Snow White having an evil mother as opposed to an evil stepmother. The original tale also contained an impudent slap-happy servant that serves a pretty important role, which was taken out by the Grimm brothers as well. These changes were done to help the story fit more in line with the important morals of the day, that mothers shouldn't be evil and servants should not slap nobility. Mm, still kind of morals of today. Still kind of morals of today, that's true. <laughs> Now, the story was again changed when Walt Disney brought it to life in the 1930s to be a sort of Depression-era inspiration. Something about grit and hard work and determination. You'll have to listen to Claire's segment from our last episode if you want more. Mm. And it is very good. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, buddy. Of course. Now, in the 40s, you had some of Disney's most beloved classics. Dumbo and Bambi were both made during World War II. 
You also had a film called Victory Through Air Power, which was an animated film on aviation. This is all done by by Walt Disney and Disney Studios. A Victory Through Air Power was too? Yeah, that was a Disney movie. Oh. And the film depicted American bombers shooting down Japanese Zeros, all animated. Uh, Japanese Zeros were the major fighter aircraft of Imperial Japan. And they had, you know, uh, Nazi planes with swastikas on it. So Victory Through Air Power was a pretty literal example of how the times were affecting (laughs) the children's media. Because it was a children's media. It was this kind of rah, rah, rah propaganda film. But made for children. Made for children. Made for adults, too. But it was, you know, it's animation, which was more geared towards children. Um, and But you can see examples of World War II in that era affecting other movies, say, which you maybe wouldn't. You know, right off the bat, you wouldn't think it would. Something like Bambi, which was released in 1942. Okay. So, I I guess they're hunters shooting Bambi? Mm-hmm. Is that part of it? Nazi hunters. No, that's, I mean, you can make that argument. There is a, there is a argument of, like... They looked Aryan. They looked, yeah. Well, you never actually, the, the funny thing about Bambi is you never actually see the hunters. Oh. You never actually see the villain. But I'm thinking of different hunters. <laughs> <laughs> the the thing the thing that Bambi had going for it that really did reflect World War II and some of the anxieties that came along with it. Um, it was not it was not narrative themes that went back to World War II, but uh, but visuals that seemed to be influenced by the war. The destruction wrought in Bambi during the mm. horrific and very very long forest fire scene are a sad precursor to what Allied bombs would do over Japan and Germany. Just or what German bombs were doing, were doing to Britain at yeah, the time. Yeah, exactly. And other parts of the world. Yeah. That um, just this really long, terrifying, and it was terrifying. People who watched it back then and even today still say that, like, yeah, that forest fire scene is frenetic and, and really, really scary. It was also the first Disney film to include a tragic loss, which is something that would become a, a fairly often used tool in <laughs> Disney movies for the future. Um, you know, Bambi's mother gets shot. Spoiler. Sorry. So sad. <laughs> Should have put that tag before I said it. But uh, yeah, but and it happens pretty early in the film as well. So the loss, the tragedy and the destruction, which are center stage in Bambi, definitely feel influenced by the terrible war that was going on during that yeah, time in the 40s. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it definitely feels more serious than some of the other yeah, Disney movies that Especially that, that preceded forest it. fire, the destruction yeah. that most of the world was dealing with, or a yeah. lot of the world, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you enter into the 1950s, uh, the Disney machine had really started to ramp up production on its movies based on the success of the studio in the 40s. So some of the most popular animated films of the decade were Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty. Um, And these are two movies that definitely fall in line with the stereotypes and gender roles of that time and that the stereotypes and gender roles that would persist and maybe were even furthered because of those movies. This is an era where women were supposed to be staying at home and keeping house. We have these two Disney princesses who are constantly cooking and cleaning and one who, for the life of her, can't keep her her hands from touching a spinning wheel. <laughs> she just she just needs she just needs to knit. She needs to make clothes. <laughs> she needs to it's making yarn. It's, it's making, making yeah, wool, making right? Wool. Yeah. Yeah. Um I also want to take time to mention that these fairy tale adaptations are much changed from their original source material. Uh, much like Snow White was was done for uh, the Disney animated film. The grim versions of these two stories are much, much darker. They involve murder, self-mutilation, and rape. And for obvious reasons, those aspects were removed for the golly gee shucks whiz era of the 1950s. 
But it, it is interesting when you look at Snow White and Sleeping Beauty, how they are kind of that ideal 50s housewife Ideal, They woman. they definitely are. They're these ideal homemaker and types. if you are a good girl and you clean yeah. and you're sweet, you will find a man to come and take care of you. Yeah, a rich man. And then you can hire someone to do all the cleaning and spinning. <laughs> not saying that's not a dream of mine. But... Yeah, she's not saying that's not a dream of mine. <laughs> Jeez. And I was told I could have it by watching these movies. I know, I know. Just persisting that myth. (laughs) Now, for time's sake, I'm going to skip over the 1960s. There are a lot of great Disney films in there, but I don't want to get too bogged down, you know, going era to era. But I want to get to the 70s because this is one of my favorite examples of children's media uh, really being influenced by the time in a way that maybe you don't expect. Uh, so I want to talk about Disney's animated Robin Hood, which was home to the foxiest foxes any of us ever mm-hmm. saw. And I, I often wonder if that was like where furry culture got its start. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Robin Hood came out in 1973, and it was the story of these plucky rebels or thieves hiding in the woods, and they were fighting back against an evil, corrupt, and greedy ruler. Does that have anything to do with Vietnam? No. I mean, you could there there's parallels you could draw there. Um, but the the big one that I I got from this was that it was released in 1973, which was in the middle of the Nixon Watergate scandal. Yeah. This is this is when trust in the government had dropped severely. Nixon's name was becoming synonymous with the word corrupt. And this was, and it was, a, it was a long process. You know, the the scandal started in 1992, and he resigned as president. In 1992. 19, or, sorry, started in 1972, and he resigned as president in 1974. This came out right in the middle, as as that was, you know, the news media was full of what's happening, what's you know, right. what's going on with Nixon, what what are the details and of this scandal. We're ready to watch a movie about a corrupt king. Yeah, well, you watch a, a kids movie about. Uh, these these fun, you know, caring rebels taking down this terrible leader who's corrupt and and taking all their money, you know, taxing them too much. So I feel like there is a a, a lot of great parallels there, and that's something we could really dig into if we had more time. I think. <laughs> now in the '80s, we have one of Disney's most beloved cult classic underachieving movies. <laughs> It's all of those things. Not a lot of people saw it, but the people who did see it are they swear by it, and they will. They will curse you out if you haven't seen it. Yeah, that's happened to me. <laughs> and that movie is The Black Cauldron. <laughs> so The Black Cauldron was the basket that held all of Disney's eggs in the 1980s, and it was the most expensive animated film ever made at that time. The total production and marketing of the movie cost $44 million, but the film only managed to recoup half of that. Um, the Black Cauldron was made in a time in the Cold War where the Soviet Union was seen to be on an upswing of power and influence. And the movie, I think, really does reflect that pessimistic Cold War attitude. In the story, our group of heroes are tasked with finding and destroying the Black Cauldron, which is a magical but terrible weapon that can create hordes of mindless soldiers that obey your command and that will be used by the villain to take over the world. And it sounds like a communist army. It does. It does. It sounds like the kind of communist, you know, the the Cold War scare of, oh, you know, the the Soviets are going to come and they're going to... You know, my thought is the North Korean army. But that's also putting it in, you know, yeah. uh, 2019 perspective. Yeah, that's yeah, true. No, that's true. But it's also covered in this this nuclear anxiety, I think, with the Black Cauldron being this super weapon that must be kept out of the enemy's hands. 
Um, and then obviously what we just mentioned, the power that it has to make you into a mindless slave soldier. And that's a movie Claire's never seen, but gets Mm-mm. grief for by, I do. by its diehard Multiple defenders. people, yeah. Now, in the 90s, Disney started hitting their stride uh, into this new golden age, making hit movie after hit movie. And I'm going to skip over this era because there's just too much to cover. Um, and I'm going to jump away from Disney films as well because we're talking about children's media. Disney films are the the most obvious example of mm-hmm. children's media, especially during, during yeah. that time. They were one of the biggest game, if not the biggest game in town for children's media. Um, But that did change in the 90s, and it definitely changed into the 2000s, where we got a a show um, that is much more closely related to The Dragon Prince than the Disney movies I just mentioned, and that show is Avatar The Last Airbender. So Avatar, which is a direct precursor to The Dragon Prince in a a creative way. It's not like a a prequel to the show itself. Um, It's an animated show that originally aired on Nickelodeon in 2005, and it follows Aang, a young boy who is the reincarnated spirit of the Avatar, a powerful being that is meant to be a balancing force in the world of the show. Now, in the show, Aang is accidentally frozen in ice for 100 years, and while he is sleeping, one of the great nations of the world, the Fire Nation, launches an invasion and surprise attack on the other three nations of the world, bent on domination. Um, And we enter the world when Aang is finally awoken and must learn to control his powers to help bring back balance to the world and end the war with the Fire Nation. So so balance, Eastern philosophy, environmental issues, those are all huge themes in this show, as is war. In Avatar, Aang must reluctantly fight in a war that has been going on for 100 years. As I said, this show came out in 2005 during the U.S. invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, and it's hard not to look at them as having a giant impact on the show, as as it would. You know, that mm-hmm. was this, this was the era that we I, were living in. I think those wars have had, have had such an impact on yeah. especially American culture. Definitely, definitely. And episodes of Avatar deal with very adult themes, even though it is a kid's show. But they talk about uh, acceptable losses in an episode in the first season and collateral damage. Mm-hmm. You know, civilians being – they never – I don't think they ever say die. But it's implied that, you know, these people would, you know, would die if we tried to fight back in the Fire Nation – against the Fire Nation in this way. Um, it also deals with fighting in a reluctant war that you didn't choose, and that rings accurate to a lot of sentiments in the year 2005. It sure does. And this leads me finally to uh, Netflix's The Dragon Prince. You know, and The Dragon Prince, uh, it The Dragon Prince really follows in the trail of those movies and shows I just listed in dealing with reflections of our own current time and often more adult themes in an animated kids show. In The Dragon Prince, we have. Uh, children who have been handed down this endless war from their parents and are questioning why it is necessary. And when thinking about current world affairs and conflicts, the seemingly endless war in Dragon Prince feels reminiscent of conflicts in the Middle East that the U.S. has been embroiled in since 2001. I mean, you talked about how someone could go fight the war today and he might not have been born. Yeah, so when the war wasn't happening. Yeah. So we're in the year 2019, there are 18-year-olds deployed, you know, all across the world for America, possibly probably in Afghanistan that were born after September 11th, 2001 when these wars started. Right. And they're still being fought today. Right. And and so someone I, I have some family connections to the military and seeing that and seeing this kind of endless war, I don't know, it's it's hard for me not to look at the Dragon Prince through that lens. 
Yeah. Oh, completely. And it's a really interesting way of looking at it. I think when we were talking about this originally, I was thinking like, oh, you know, like acceptance and tolerance and seeing every side. And you were like, no, an ongoing war. Yeah, this endless <laughs> war. Well, there's, there's also the idea that uh, the adults in the Dragon Prince are leaving all these problems to the mm-hmm. kids, which is something that that is definitely on the mind in the, the tongues of people today about climate change and environmental impact like and and, and a debt war and a war like how how much how much of a mess are adults leaving to the next generation are right people now? who were in charge in 2001 yeah leaving for kids who are 18 who are, now yeah or who are being born right now yeah oh so that was really interesting Kyle I love you, following Claire. things through the decades oh yes, yes yes a little a little walk through uh, the past I love looking at dresses and I love hearing about children's <laughs> animation so I'm going to kind of hone in a little bit on the making of this show I'm going to start with its creators um, one being Aaron Ehas he started writing TV on the short-lived show Mission Hill. From there, he went to work on almost every iteration of Futurama and then became the head writer on Avatar The Last Airbender. You are so excited. Oh, my God. He worked on Futurama? Mm-hmm. Of course he did. Oh, it's the greatest show ever made. <laughs> Justin Richmond, another creator, is best known for his work on the Uncharted series. He led the development of Uncharted 2 and directed Uncharted 3, which we t- have an episode about. Also very cool. Um, and they met while working at Riot Games, which, if you don't know, is most known for its very popular video game, League of Legends. And now it has some very questionable treatment of its female employees. You can read about that on Kotaku. Yes. Um, but that aside, um, Ehas was Riot's creative director and Richmond was the head of ga- the game development team. Those are some pretty high up positions. Oh, it gets better. They, along with Justin Santistevin, who was Riot's head of finance, left Riot in 2016 and founded Wonderstorm, a studio where they wanted to create video games and expanded media to go along with it. Wow, that must I wonder if that that must have really shaken up uh, Riot Games then. It's like yeah. a huge defection of, of people really high up. Um, well, they said they loved working at Riot, and they loved what they were working on, but they wanted to control 100% of what they were making. So maybe it was a thing that they were contributing so much, but they didn't get final say. Sure. And um, they said with Wonderstorm, they ultimately wanted to be able to make an amazing story and then expand on that on the game front. Um, and they got really lucky because their first partner was Netflix, or one of their first partners. And The Dragon Prince is the first work that their studio has created. <laughs> That's a, that's a pretty great they're, maidenship. They're, yeah, they're doing pretty well. Now, something that I really loved about what they're trying to do with what they make is that they said a common thread with what their team wanted to do was make something hopeful. And they talk a lot in interviews about how hopefulness can come off as cheesy or too good to be true. But they believe that they can make something hopeful and that it can be good because the good in the story is earned. And this is earned by presenting real obstacles and character flaws that characters have to overcome. And it's like the real world. Things can be hard, but you can still be good and you can still be strong despite everything. And I feel like really dark TV is very trendy right now. It definitely is. And I know they're making a kids cartoon, but it is really nice that they set out to, you know, like, let's make something good. Let's yeah. make something hopeful. But still serious and dealing with with real, real yeah, problems. Yeah, but there is a very fun 
Oh, definitely. Hopeful tone. Yeah. Nice tone. Yeah. There's probably better adjectives, and I'm just not thinking of them. Nice tone is perfect. Thank Perfectly you, describes Thanks, it. Kyle. That's kind of is over the whole thing. Yeah. Now, as far as making the Dragon Prince goes, when they started writing, they said they liked the idea of writing a show where kids are starting to understand that their parents might have made decisions that they wouldn't have made. That goes along with your segment. Yes. And asking the question, can young people actually change things? Now, Aaron started talking about incorporating magic into the story early on. And Justin, who is a self-described fantasy nut, side note, his uncle owned a fantasy and science fiction bookstore when he was a kid, loved the idea, and really pushed making this a fantasy story. And so together, they came up with this beautiful high fantasy world. They were influenced by the usual suspects, um, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, Narnia. They also borrowed ideas from older mythologies and stories, but ultimately they wanted their world to be original. So it's in the same field as these high fantasy stories, but different from anything else that I've ever seen, at least. Definitely. It feels it doesn't feel like a ripoff of any one particular no, fantasy No, it certainly story. doesn't. Now, one of the first aspects that they came up with in the story was the idea of dark magic versus just magic and how dark magic was easier and more effective, but it could consume the person that was using it. Reminds me of the Force, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and once they had that magic system in place, they started developing characters and then the characters made the magic system more interesting, or so they say. And to make the story, they started following ideas and writing scenes that they said might not even make it into the story, but help them develop it. Develop it. And as far as the magic rules go, as they were developing the story and the world, they would have to go back and change scenes because they had to keep the rules consistent. And they did say that the upside of working um, in a studio that had a bunch of game designers in it was that they made sure the that the rules were followed because they work right alongside the yeah. writers. Yeah, yeah. And you know, they, it was this funny thing of saying that, yes, the game developers were on top of it <laughs> and would not let us get away with any little, you know, like, tweaks yeah, or, yeah. you know. Fudging the magic system to, to work a plot point or exactly. something. Exactly. Now, The Dragon Prince is a children's story. We can agree on that. Definitely. But it does. it also feels like it's made with adults in mind. Definitely. And he has said that he pulled a lot from his experience of working on Avatar The Last Airbender. And though it was marketed for children— the people making the show were making it for themselves, for people who loved imaginative storytelling and smart stories, and he's trying to do the same thing here. They do have dark moments in here, like death, but they believe that kids deal with dark things and that they are aware of what's going on, and they're careful with the storytelling. There won't be anything horrifically violent, but they think it's okay to have real things in their story, um, and that it creates stronger storytelling, and that a lot of... Younger storytelling gets ruined because it's so sanitized. And they talk a lot about the first Star Wars, which kids love. I loved as a kid. Um, Luke's aunt and uncle are killed pretty yeah, early like on. Yeah, like 10 minutes. And then Luke's mentor is killed. Yeah. So they, they say, you know, kids can handle the darker material as long as it's done in the right way. Yeah. Now, I would be remiss if I talked about The Dragon Prince and did not talk about the animation. James mentioned it a little bit in our Snow White episode. The animation is a blend of 2D animation and CGI. So I don't quite know what that means. And this is how I understand it. It's 3D computer animated. 
but it has a 2D animation style, which seems to be trying to recall a classic style. So it's almost like it's done with the older cartoons in mind, but it's still done using modern technology. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. It took me a minute of reading to actually fully get what was going on. However, the problem with the animation is that they are doing it at a very slow frame rate. That's 12 frames per second. To put this in perspective, Snow White, which was made in 1938, this is almost 100 years ago, was 24 frames per second. And they had to work a lot harder on those 24 frames than the Dragon Prince had to work on they for those 12 frames. They sure did. And it's actually to a point where it's noticeable, and many viewers have called out the animation for being choppy. I personally didn't really notice it, but you said you noticed it. I did notice it. Um, and the thing is, you the show can say, or the creators can say, oh, no, we're trying to copy this old school style where they didn't you know, move as fast as they do now. However, they're using modern animation techniques to mimic camera movements that are more modern so it's not like they're even complete being completely strict yeah, with this older an old animation form definitely now the creators say that they've heard the fans and they're going to try and work on fixing parts of the animation for season two they also might have more money thrown at them since it's done fairly well yes yes um they want the show to have a very long journey. They have thought it uh, thought it out as far as season five. Um, from very early on, they knew where they wanted the show to go, and they do have an end game in mind. So I feel like that's a very promising thing for that a show. It's not like sure. a Heroes or a Lost yeah. where it felt it like the first forever. season is so well fleshed out, and then yeah. the creators didn't know where to take it from yeah. there. Now, I also want to spend some time talking about Netflix because I'm always fascinated by these streaming giants and how they're changing the game. And Netflix keeps a lot of their info pretty close to the chest, right. too. Like I, they, they don't release a lot of... Like, we know that the, that the Dragon Prince has been renewed for a second season, but we don't know how well it's done. Yeah, they don't let anyone know who how many people are watching any if, of these If things. you do know, please let me know. I'm yes. actually incredibly curious. Um, the creator said working with Netflix was pretty great. They gave them very few notes. And then Netflix was also very supportive. They said they would get a note and Netflix would say, oh, can you change this? But you're doing a really good job and we love the direction <laughs> the show is going, which they said working for any network, that was never how notes were given. Yeah. Though they do have to adjust how Netflix launches the series. It doesn't have the fanfare, I think, that they were expecting to yeah. get with it. Um, but that they recognize that Netflix does things in a new way and in the way that Netflix trusted them to make the show, they have to trust Netflix. So a little bit about Netflix. Um, and this was an article that I read about Netflix's plans for 2018. I'm sure there will very soon be an article released about Netflix's plans for 2019. Yeah. But we're kind of we're going to look back at what Netflix was intending to do. They were set to spend eight billion dollars on content in 2018 and have around 700 TV shows on the platform. That is insane. They were set to release 86 original films in 2018, up 61 percent from 2017. And set to have over a thousand original pieces by the end of the year. At the end of 2017, they had 125 million subscribers. So how do they do it? How do they do that? A thousand original pieces? Well, um, 
I'm not going to quite talk about the 1,000 original pieces. Let's Netflix break like, them down one by one. <laughs> Netflix likes to own its content and then distribute that content on a platform that it owns, which is a very new system. Yeah. It's, it's being copied, but no one does it quite as strongly as they do. Um, it has different from so many other TV services because it can then access that data of what viewers are watching to continue to grow it, its business. And it makes sure that the right content gets to you through recommendations on its own platform. So let's just take a look at how they made their first series, House of Cards, because to me this is fascinating. They looked at consumers' viewing history to see what shows they liked, what actors they liked, et cetera, et cetera. And they saw that viewers who liked the original BBC House of Cards also watched films that Kevin Spacey was in. And they also watched movies directed by David Fincher. Oh, my God. And then House of Cards was with Kevin Spacey and directed by David Fincher. Yes. So they essentially are courting you? Yeah. Like, they're like, oh, you like this? Oh, you like this? Oh, you like this? Then you will... Definitely love this. We're going to bake a little cake for you then, and it's (laughs) going to be delicious. But you are saying that you and your girlfriend have separate profiles on Netflix? We do. And that you signed into her profile and had never seen it? Yeah, it's like being in another dimension. It's like, wow, (laughs) this is not the Netflix that I ever see. Like what's suggested and what's trending, what it says is trending for her is very different than what it says is trending for me. Lots of baking shows. Lots of great British baking shows, things like that. Where on my side, it's, you know, more full of anime and <laughs> bad action movies. <laughs> well, it's working. According according to a Morgan Stanley survey, 39% of U.S. consumers say Netflix has the best original programming. This was as of uh, early 2018. HBO is at 14%. Amazon is at 5%. And Hulu is at 4%. So they are blowing away everybody else trying to make things. And that's and crazy I think that, that, that HBO just, is that 14%. shift just kind of happened. Oh, but wow. But Netflix has so much more than HBO. I know. The only thing you can say about HBO is Game of Thrones, really. Well, no, it has a lot of great West, stuff. It's got a lot of great stuff. But, Westworld. But, but the, I feel like the big talking point. No, I feel like what HBO does well is they'll have a very trendy series. Yeah. Um, what was that one that came out about the moms in Monterey? Where there was a murder. Oh, yeah, yeah. True Lies. Big Little Lies. Big Little Lies. Not true like, Lies. Bad, bad action movie. <laughs> true Detective. True Detective. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they'll come out with this very trendy show yeah. that will, you know, garner a lot of talk and a lot of interest. But it just doesn't have the content yeah. or the money that Netflix has, I guess, to pump out. Like, everything you could possibly want or desire. I believe it was Napoleon who said, uh, quantity has a quality all its own. (laughs) And it sounds like that's the approach Netflix is doing. But they are, their shows that I watch, the original shows, are well produced. Oh, yeah. They have great stuff. I think they said in an article that I was reading that Stranger Things was a big turning point for them, where that was so popular that so many people then subscribed to the site. Okay. That then from there they were able to... To start launching more things. You know, and appeal to different people's interests. Wow. So now we're going to move on to our third segment, which we're kind of changing up. Yes. Now that we're pairing two episodes together. So here's a little test run for you all. Kyle, what is our, our first thing that we're hitting? Why did we decide that 
Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, animated by Walt Disney in 1937. Links to Netflix's The Dragon Prince. 1938, excuse me. I wasn't on that episode. <laughs> in the ballpark of. Um, links why? to The Dragon Prince? Links to The Dragon Prince. Why did, why did we decide that? Okay. Why did we decide I to put these together? I think this was mostly my fault. But let me tell you. Kyle, I spent so much time reading articles and interviews with the creators of the Dragon Prince trying, trying to, to find, find like something. what influenced the Dragon Prince. Yeah. And it was all like, oh, stock fantasy. Yeah. I did the same. When you said that, I was like, well, she must not have looked in the right places. And of course you had. And I looked and was like, wow. Yeah, they're kind of tight-lipped. It's like, did they have any inspiration? Oh, fantasy, like Tolkien and stuff. But okay. then, what are, yeah, and like, what are we gonna do? The first fantasy story. Um. Anyway, I think knew we. I know we threw around some Shakespeare as an we idea. We did. We threw around Midsummer's Night, Midsummer Night's Dream as an idea. I think ultimately we landed on Snow White. Um. Because, at the end of the day, the Dragon Prince is an animated series, and Snow White is the first major animated movie. They're both fantasy as well. One has elves, the other has dwarves, kind of a yin and yang. <laughs> yes, that was exactly my thought. And we thought, well, why not compare animated styles, how the animation in Snow White influenced Dragon Prince, because it had to have influenced Dragon Prince, because animation would be very different without Snow White. And I knew that without researching it. One has a witch, the other has a... Evil warlock guy. My gosh, we are so smart. Yang and yang. Yang and yang, Claire. So did it make sense at the end of the day after we've done this research to link these two together? I'm going to let you answer this first. I will say that um, watching Snow White and listening to your guys' segment on Snow White and the effort it took from a, a production standpoint of putting this animation together and doing this thing that had never been done before, it it did make me look at Dragon Prince in a different light. And that light is, wow, these people in 1935 when they were doing this made something that looks better than something that was made in 2018. True, though they, A, didn't have Disney's budget, and B... Had they brought Dragon Prince to a financial meeting at a bank, probably would not have gotten funded in the same way Snow White had. This is true. This um, is true. But that's, I mean, when when thinking about the two and comparing them, that's the one of the first things I remember thinking um, mm-hmm. about them both. And I like the Dragon Prince. I think it was a fun show. Yeah. I think I had the same thought as well. Like, wow, what is anyone doing with animation yeah. that Disney hasn't already done? I mean, yeah. We're not talking about Pixar. I think that would probably be a better pairing with Snow White if we took what Pixar is doing right now yeah. and Snow White. Yeah. Um, as far as being at the very top of the animation game. Definitely. Um, but it also, I did enjoy looking at um, themes in children's uh, animation through the years and how they do reflect the culture and the values. And I I really appreciated what you were talking about today and looking at, you know, Robin Hood, which I didn't realize came out right after the Nixon scandal. Yeah. You know, and how it was appropriate to release it then and probably not in the 1930s. Yeah. Well, I feel like right now we're in sort of a renaissance of, um, of children's media 
being enjoyable for adults mm-hmm. um, and and just the but it's not a new thing that children's media can tackle current affairs or um, or adult themes that's not new it's been it's they've been, been doing it they've since been doing it for at a least while. the Grimm's yeah yeah um, but it just seems like it's getting more respect now for doing it right well it also pulls in that money if adults enjoy it as well this is true I go spend money to watch Pixar movies at least in theaters. Yeah, I yeah. saw the Lego Movie in theaters. Well, I was my, I was talking to my older brother um, who has two kids and he's a big fantasy fan, and him and his daughter watched the Dragon Prince together until you know she fell behind because she had to go to school or whatever, and <laughs> he had off a couple days and he burned right through it without her. So it, it was, oh no, I know, I know he finished it without. He was like, well screw her, she can't keep up. <laughs> I'm gonna keep going. I need to know what happens next. So it is. It is definitely a show that um, that connects with kids and adults. And looking back and reading stuff about Snow White in the in the 30s, that was the same way. You know, mm-hmm. children and parents were going there and being amazed and falling right. in love and being terrified by the the characters. I do think animation took a dive in the 80s, as much as you love Black Cauldron. Um, and I think that part of um, the this boom in animation. Um, does have to do with animators also connecting to an adult audience. Yes, definitely. And that was a, a segment that was written and thrown out by me <laughs> that was never recorded, actually, when we were trying to figure out what we are going to talk about for the Dragon Prince, <laughs> was um, was how animation has changed and, and why maybe it, it, it lost some esteem through the years mm-hmm. when it started with something like Snow White, which, which was beloved. Which was very esteemed. Yeah. yeah, which was very esteemed. Now, how has our view on either of these things changed, having done this really extensive research into both Dragon Prince and Snow White, and watching them both? I mean, I have a new appreciation for Snow White. It is not the best animated film I've ever watched by a long shot. Yeah. But having learned what a big deal it was in its time... And then watching it with the idea of this was the first time people had seen animation done in a full-length version. And especially the amount of work that Disney and his team put into it kind of made me emotional. Yeah, I agree. Like, I was watching history. It was so cool. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, the research on Snow White and your guys' segment and talking about it definitely makes me look at it with less of like a cynical, oh, you know, old old Disney with you know outdated gender roles. Oh no, you look at this and you're like, oh, this is this was a very well done story. And, yeah, and, and they were the gender product. roles of the time. And they were the gender roles of the time, exactly. Right, and also that they were voice acting to a beat. Yeah. And if you listen to the doors and all the jokes that they're making, Doc and his stuttering, yeah. that is done to a To beat a metronome. So they could animate it correctly. It's amazing. Yeah. And the, the score, it, watching it as an adult and listening to that score, that score is beautiful. That's a soundtrack that people should own. <laughs> they did. Yeah, and they did. And <laughs> they did. Now, I feel like uh, um, we've talked a lot about our appreciation for Snow White and going back to that and seeing Snow White and, and going back to something that we've all seen, but looking at it, you know, as an adult and with more of a critical eye and being blown away. What about Dragon Prince? I really enjoy Dragon Prince. It is right up my alley. My favorite um, 
TV show is Avatar The Last Airbender, which is how this was sold to me. This yeah. is how Netflix found me. This is how they marketed, to, marketed it to everybody. Right. Well, everybody in their algorithm yeah, that, that <laughs> would enjoy Avatar The Last Airbender, they said, you know what you'd also like? Like, the lead writer from Avatar The Last Airbender did this fantasy show. Well, it was show. kind of sold as the creators of Avatar The Last Air- Airbender, which was the impression I was under. Which is not true. Not true at all. It's the head writer. Um, But anyway, I loved, I really enjoyed watching The Dragon Prince. I was really caught up in it. I couldn't wait to watch the next episode. I was sad when it ended, and I can't wait for it to come back. However, now that I've done extensive research on it, and also done extensive research on Snow White, it feels almost unfair. To put the, yeah, to compare them. To put the two together, because... You know, just think of the vision and the work that Disney put into Snow yeah. White versus the vision and the work that they put into The Dragon Prince, which is a great show. Yeah, The Dragon Prince is a lot of fun, but it's not the pivotal, it, the the Kickstarter of animation as a real medium in film. You know, it's uh, I think Snow it would White have been was. better had we paired it with Avatar: The Last Airbender. Yeah, and I think in retrospect we acknowledge it now, but it just felt so recent and. Yeah, that we didn't want to do that. Um, but I think we we should talk a little bit about where Dragon Prince falls in comparison to Avatar The Last Airbender because that is how it was marketed to mm-hmm. to us, you know, to the people who were into that. This is from the team behind Avatar The Last Airbender is what the advertisements would say. Yeah. Which led you to think creators, but, it, oh, it's the head writer and probably some other people. I'm sure Aaron, he has brought other people over that he worked with to do this show? Um, it's not the same, but I think it's also, again, almost unfair to because them. they are asking a different creator to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Avatar is amazing. Again, my favorite TV show. Yeah. I think one of the best ever made. Yeah. Um, and I, I had to watch The Dragon Prince and, and not compare it to Avatar to really enjoy it. Yeah. Because the highs aren't the same, and I think the world isn't as creative and fully developed. I and that's I definitely agree, and that's something I wanted to mention is that I you know us looking going through interviews with the the creators of the Dragon Prince, trying to find out what their big inspirations were, and getting vague allusions to like oh you know fantasy Lord of the Rings high fantasy. The world, I think, in The Dragon Prince does reflect that. It's a little... It, it's not as distinctive of a taste as, mm-hmm. uh, as the world of Avatar The Last Airbender, which was really flushed out. But the thing that... And it's funny, you mentioned this um, in your segment. You know, it's a lot of game designers, and they, were, they focused a lot on making the magic system function with rules. In The Dragon Prince, the magic system feels pretty flushed out and feels really consistent and you you kind of And it's a lot of fun. And it's a lot of fun and you kind of see where the focus was. I also think that we have seen 9 episodes of Dragon Prince. That's true. Avatar has 3 seasons. How many episodes per season? Uh just 20, I think. It's 20 in the first season. Okay. So about 60 episodes of Avatar. I am of the opinion that Dragon Prince will get better. I think it's a new studio. Yeah. They're working out how to do this. Yeah. Uh, Ehaz has never been the um, showrunner on a show before. Yeah. So I, while it doesn't have quite the quick 
amazing start that Avatar yeah. had. I I'm really happy to give it time. I'm really happy that it exists. I it's a great fun show for kids and adults. Yeah. And if you love high fantasy, this is a great addition to the high fantasy genre. I definitely agree. Now, would we recommend watching these separate or together? Like, if you really enjoy The Dragon Prince, to get a new appreciation of it, should you go back and watch Snow White? No, no. Yeah, I, I don't think so no, either. That's our bad. We yeah. learned a lot. We Moving know. forward. <laughs> Everybody's learning. We're all learning together. Um, I do think you should definitely watch Snow White. And I do recommend listening to our episode and then watching Snow White because it brings a new appreciation to it. And I definitely think you should watch The Dragon Prince and hopefully our episode will bring some new context to it that you didn't know before, but you don't have to watch them together. Yeah. Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Kyle Willoughby. And I'm Clara White. And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com, and we would love it if you could give us a rate or review on iTunes. They help the show a lot. You can find the show on Twitter at dsrapodcast. I can be found on Twitter at klex303. That's K-L-E-X-303. I can be found at Along With Claire. That is C-L-A-I-R-E. And you can find our producer James at James Foey Jr. That's James Foey, F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R. You can learn more about the Dragon Prince on our Facebook page where we're going to post some of the articles and, and research we, we use for our show. Our producer, who loves the idea of dark evil magic, is James Foey. Our logo was done by Patty Highland, who is our, our very own personal moon elf assassin. And our theme was composed by Pete Rowan, who is our very own personal evil witch. Once again... This is Dragon's Sexy Robots and Adventures, a nerd manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks when we're back with our second questionable pairing, uh, talking about the C.L. Moore novel, Jirel of Jewelry. Pulp Fiction novel. Pulp Fiction novel, and we'll be pairing it with what now, Claire? A little show called Outlander. Yes, yes. This was, uh, this was on Claire's list of things to do episodes on. So thanks, and we will see you in two weeks.